Hey, tea lovers, this is your host, Dee, and you're listening to the Tea with Dee podcast, the show that teaches you how to recover, regain, and relive. Diving into inner child healing, self-love, codependency, and trauma, the podcast for people who are looking to find their true, authentic self. Join me on the journey to live our best lives. Now let's get to the episode. Welcome back, guys, to season two of Tea with Dee. Today, I have a very special guest, Annie Dominguez. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for coming. So the reason why I had Annie today is because she is a therapist and Mm -hmm. along with being a therapist, she also has other titles. And what are those titles? What are things that people would like to get to know about you? Okay. Oh, what do people want to know? Well, I am a wife. I'm a mom of three. I have a six-year-old, a two-and-a-half-year-old, and a one-year-old. Run a bath bomb company called The Tub Club, which kind of focuses on um, self-care for busy moms like me. I kind of am a self-proclaimed philanthropist. I'm a licensed therapist. I'm a wine drinker. (laughs) I'm a traveler. I like spending time with my friends. And I definitely like taking on more than I can handle. So basically what you're saying is every tea lover listening to this is already in love with you. So why would you be? Yes. Basically. Um, no, but I wanted to have Annie on today. And thank you for coming first, first off. So glad to be here. I am just excited because I've been wanting to get a licensed therapist and someone who is like no fluff and very much straight to the point. This is how I feel. But you're just super real and you say it how it is. And I think that a lot of people resonate with that and... There's some type of relatability. That's the word I'm looking for. Relatability to you. What made you decide to become a therapist? Okay, so my mom was a therapist. Mm -hmm. And my entire life, I fought becoming her. Okay. Okay. Oh, interesting. I did not want to be my mom. Right. I knew it was coming, though. Everyone told me, oh, you just like your mom my whole life. So I spent several years, several, several, several years kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And every class I took at City College, I was like, "Mm, that's not quite right. This isn't it. So when I finally transferred to Fresno State and journeyed to becoming a therapist, I originally was enrolled as a communications major. And again, same thing. I took my first class and I was like, no, I don't want to do this. So I remember I went to Manhattan with my mom and I was like, I don't know. I don't know why I can't figure this out. Like what, why is school so hard for me? And she said, well, you know, I know. And she knew, I know you've been fighting this, but I think you should look into social work. I think you might like it. So I did the next day I transferred majors and it was like love at first class. I guess you could say, I just knew instantly that, okay, I don't know why I've been avoiding this for so long, but here we are. And this is where I'm meant to be. Interesting. So where, so can you touch a little bit on the work that you did beginning, starting your career as a therapist and social work? Yeah. So, um, when I first got into this and decided to go, go into social work, I thought I was going to be a medical social worker. I wanted to, you know, work with people as they were going through transitions or illness in more of a medical setting. I did that for several years and kind of figured out I like thrived on the adrenaline from being in like the ER and the ICU. I, I just loved it. But unfortunately with that came a, a pretty terrible work schedule being called in in the middle of the night oh and working gosh. overnight shifts. And so I just kind of figured out after you know I met my <laughs> husband and was being paged out of bed in the middle of the night. I'm like this, this schedule is not quite for me. So that's when I kind of pursued more traditional individual therapy and 
my initial work at a clinic, we did we almost exclusively worked with kids in foster care. Mm. And so that's where all of my training came from. Yeah, and so that's what I, I worked with kids just constantly that had histories of abuse, physical, verbal, emotional, and some of the most severe neglect. It's so sad. It's so sad. It was just heartbreaking. Yeah. And a lot of people listening to this right now know that I'm really big on attachment styles. I'm big on like your childhood environment, childhood healing, and like how much your child development affects how you are into adulthood. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that, how the children that you see and the environments they grow up in, how that plays in who they are into adults. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's so much research now that tells us that shows us how important your original attachment with your primary caregiver especially in those zero to five years old how important that is to your life in general to your whole journey and how you as you grow into adulthood how you parent how you are as a spouse how you are just connecting general in relationships with other people of course what we hope to see primarily is secure attachment so that's when you're a baby and your primary caregiver is attentive to you, they recognize your needs, they respond to them, they allow you a place to process them and contain them, and then you learn how to effectively cope and communicate what's happening. But so often, you know, and so sadly, there are so many people who experience insecure attachments with their primary caregivers. Yeah, Definitely um, me. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, so, so many people do. We absolutely. That leads to kind of lifelong troubles in your relationships and in your connections with other people. Now, that doesn't mean if you have a certain attachment style <laughs> or relationship now that it's going to be like that forever. I mean, that's why we have therapy. That's why we have interventions. So some people are like, well, I'm screwed. You know, my (laughs) mom is a terrible mom and I have an anxious attachment style and I'm never going to figure out this relationship thing and, you know, it's never going to work. But that's not true. Right. But I think the, the most important thing is recognizing what your attachment style is and having awareness about, you know, how you are in relationships with others. What type of attachment style are you? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> Did it change over time? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And my journey in therapy has taught me a lot about how to recognize my own behavior and how I connect to others. Mm-hmm. And also how I'm like constantly searching for external validation. Oh, me. Instead <laughs> of just knowing that like I'm good enough. Right. What, I'm, what I do all the time is okay. It's enough, but instead, you know, we're constantly striving for more and kind of never meeting our own expectations. Oh yeah, all the time. Which is exhausting. Well, I also feel too, because I'm an anxious attachment, I always self-soothe outside myself, like with relationships, guys I've dated, having to use like friends as a way to self-soothe. And this is the first time in my life where, because I'm in therapy, my therapist and I talk about just what you said you're okay you're worthy like you are enough you can take a moment and self-soothe yourself and it's a lot harder and easier said than done mm-hmm. and i think that's a big thing totally and it takes daily practice yeah I mean, you have to have awareness about that not once a week or once a month you have to be thinking about it constantly in order to grow and improve in your relationships speaking on relationships do you feel like your attachment style can change based on who you're with too or is that something more, this, the things that you go through in life? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that being in a relationship with somebody who is healthy and they have some really good coping and positive attachment relationships can certainly support you in your growth, right? Mm -hmm. If you have somebody who's a good role model, they're not constantly trying to trigger you. Absolutely, that can help facilitate a stronger connection or a stronger relationship, but it really is your own internal work yeah. is where it really comes from. I could see that. That makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. You know, so you said that you're kind of an anxious, anxious attachment. So, you know, this often stems from having a primary caregiver who is a little bit maybe in- inconsistent right? or not always predictable in the way that they meet your emotional need. Constantly trying to kind of read your parents' mood. Like, oh, yes. what am I going to get here? Mm-hmm. Are they going to explode? Yeah. And so you're constantly kind of waiting for connection okay. that sometimes you get and no, that's why I'm hypersensitive to everyone I've ever dated. I'm like looking for clues when the ball's going to drop uh-huh. because of the inconsistency in the parenting. Yeah. It's, it sucks, but I've learned to manage it better, Yeah, which is nice. And you're always, you're always wanting validation. Like, come here, show me a really intense, we have a really intense connection. <laughs> and I know that you love me. Tell me again. Tell me all again. The time, tell me all again. the time. All the time. Yeah. Oh, I remember times where they'd be, well, you know, I love you. I'm like, no, I literally need you to say it. All the time. All the time. And how stressful is that is now not being in a relationship right now and seeing outside, you really become more self-aware. Oh, maybe that was a little too much. But if you do have a healthy partner, you get enough, but it does really start with you. Like you said, Yeah, it is a thing. And I tease my six-year-old even sometimes, um, you know, he goes, when he says, you know, I love you, mom. I say, well, then how how come you, you know, or do you, do you love me? Do you love me? (laughs) Yes, mom. How come you never tell me then? And then I catch myself. I'm like, Annie, stop. You're (laughs) you're just needing so much validation from a six-year-old to be reminded that you have a strong, secure relationship (laughs) and that he loves you. Yes. You know, so (laughs) yes, we do that. Exactly. So that's kind of one of the characteristics of an anxious attachment style. But there's also avoidant is a big one. And we all know those people, right, who are avoidant (laughs) in their relationships. And that comes from a caregiver who is pretty distant, non-responsive. The child begins to believe that their needs just aren't going to get met. So it often leads to like a fear of intimacy, really a lot of trouble getting close to others, kind of emotionally unavailable. Like, I don't need, (laughs) right? I don't need you. I always thought of an avoidant as they let you onto the porch, but never inside the house. That's how I think of it. I like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's like, oh, you're here, but I'm not going to let you in because I don't trust you enough. I don't trust you enough. Exactly. Those children begin to restrict their emotions and they become really independent. So they feel suffocated in relationships. They they have it. We're we're humans. We're wired for connection. Right. Right. So, so they want that connection, but when it gets close, it's like, uh, it's it's crazy. Cause to me, I think, because you know, then you fall into the anxious avoidant trap that can be talked on Mm -hmm. forever, you know, but I I think it's so interesting because I only attract avoidant men. And I think it's because of that fear written rule or belief that we have that we're not good enough. So we attract people who make us feel maybe we're not good enough. Uh And then it's so funny because avoidance want love and anxious attachments give all that love, but then it there comes at a price and then you get scared. It's just this weird it's, cycle. Yeah. The it's, push and pull. It's so crazy. But yeah, that is I love you, now go away. <laughs> yeah. right. It's sad. Yeah. That is kind of sad if you think about it. Mm-hmm. I don't I mean and then there's also isn't there um, a fearful avoidant? There is, yeah. And that um, that a lot of times stems from that's the one thankfully is the least common mm-hmm. and there's the least amount of research on, but this 
stems from children who come from very abusive environments as a child. So um, caregivers who are really traumatizing or frightening to the child. And that's similar in that it's just this desperately wanting to be loved, but also experiencing like a very deep distrust of others. They don't, they don't trust that because those initial caregiver relationships, you know, there's all that for them. So that, that is very much that push and pull. What type of children did you normally see when you're in therapy? Could um, you tell at that young of age already what type of attachment style these children were? It was very clear right off the bat whether they had secure attachment relationships or insecure. Right. right? So many of the kids that I saw in my initial practice had very severe abuse and neglect. So though that really was a lot of the fearful avoidant kind of disorganized type type attachment that comes with reactive attachment disorder. So you've talked a little bit and I know that you paused your practice. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to do that? When I was pregnant with my second, my two and a half year old, my second son. Well, first of all, so my first pregnancy, I laid on the floor for nine months because I was so sick the whole time. Oh my gosh. And so I quickly realized with my second pregnancy that, okay, here, we're going to do this again. <laughs> we're going to be sick constantly. First got pregnant, I started seeing clients. And as I was trying to do therapy without throwing up, um, <laughs> during session, I, at 14 weeks pregnant, we got diagnosis that my son had Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. So we got those results from genetic testing. They do that, by the way, when you turn 35, because you're regardless because you're considered geriatric pregnancy once you turn 35 really i didn't know that rude (laughs) that does not make you feel good warm and fuzzy (laughs) so that's like an automatic testing so anyway we found that out that he had down syndrome and that was an incredibly hard process to go through we were um pretty shook up and really really uncertain about what our life was going to look like you know, it wasn't something we were expecting or wanting. We had no idea at that point how, what a blessing Connor would be. Right. But so I knew at that point I had already started taking on the emotions of my clients in ways once I had my first son in ways that I hadn't before. Hmm. I felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders because I took on their hurts and their heartaches and their anxieties and their sadness. And I took it all home with me. Were you almost like an empath? It felt heavy. Yeah. Felt like I absolutely could not separate myself from... That must have been hard. It was so hard. So I knew at that point that I I had to lighten my load a little bit. Right. Or a lot of it. And create the space that I needed to heal and process our, our own personal, you know, kind of crises that felt like was happening learn how to be better for my kids that makes sense i mean you're nesting and you're trying to create a home and how can you create a home and help other people if you're not fixed it's almost like the saying that they have about the the face mask on a plane you have to put your face mask on first before you help someone else totally yeah so i feel like that's probably what happened totally yeah i knew at that point that i really needed to be on my own journey Mm -hmm. I need to focus on that instead of focused on everyone else's. During that time when you were deciding whether or not you wanted to stay with your practice and then or focus more on being a mother, did you kind of feel like like the imposter syndrome started playing a big role into yeah. your life? Can yeah. you kind of talk about what imposter syndrome is and how you how it affected your life? Totally. Yeah, so it's not it's not a clinical diagnosis, but it, imposter syndrome is something that people experience all the time and it basically is 
when you doubt your own abilities, right? So you don't feel like you are good enough. And I remember my very, my very first session with my very first client at my very first clinic. They put me in a, in a room and I sat there with my client and I was like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, whoa, I kept looking for like, who's going to fix this? And I was yeah. like, oh, that's me. Yeah. I'm supposed to do this. So, you know, obviously with training and supervision and consulting and my own therapy, I, I grew out of that a little bit, but it's something that I always always experienced is am I doing the right thing doing what makes me qualified oh because I went to school for 10 years and you know took an exam okay so was there any point along the way where you wanted to quit because parts of you didn't feel qualified I know you said that but was there like a moment or a memory that you can play back oh I just this is not I can't do this no there wasn't there wasn't necessarily like one moment the pressure of taking on the emotions of my clients got to be too much. That makes sense. Do you ever think that you'll go back? Yes. You do? I do. Do you have yeah. plans anytime soon or is it something that you know you'll go back to? I know I'll go back to it. I don't know what my, I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like for me <laughs> at this point, but you know, I, I really do love therapy and I'll always be on the journey of learning more in order to help others. I love that. I think that's really important. Yeah. What are some lessons you've learned? Motherhood, being a wife, entrepreneur that could help others. I think what's most important is for people to never stop growing and always take the time to recognize what their emotional needs are and how to get those met. Mm -hmm. Like you are the most important thing. Yeah. In the world. (laughs) Right? In your world. Yeah. So... Pay attention to that and put in the work that it takes to make yourself the best version that you can be. I couldn't agree more. And then last question, best piece of advice you'd give to someone struggling right now and who's doubting their abilities. Just do it. Mm -hmm. Get after it. Go. Because even though our doubts hold us back sometimes, how often are you like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And you do it. And then you're like, Oh yeah, I did it. Yeah, that's true. I feel like all the best times that I have in life are the ones where I didn't want to do it. And then I was like, okay, like I'll go to this event or I'll do Uh this thing. And I end up meeting amazing people or have an amazing shared experience. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if I held myself back, I wouldn't have been able to see this. Totally. And everything is a learning opportunity. Yeah. Right. Um, so just go do the thing. Grow. I love it. Thank you so much, Annie. Absolutely. Thank you.